This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. And I'm Jonathan. Okay, I'm just going to say it. I love this episode. It was so much fun to read about and to research all the extra details that the records didn't quite explain, you know, to study the maps and see the relationships between the cities, the land, whatever, to write, to edit, to record. Basically, this is one of my favorites that I think I've done so far, and I hope you agree. On this episode, we see Duke Robert Giscard set up an impregnable blockade that happened to be broken several times. We see Emperor Romanus IV Diogenes make an appearance just months prior to his catastrophic defeat at the hands of Alp Arslan, the Seljuk Turk leader. We see Count Roger. Well, that's pretty cool. So I'm going to leave you hanging on on Count Roger's uh, appearance here. Suffice it to say that it's just a fun episode, and I genuinely hope you have as much fun listening to it as I had producing it for you. This is episode 118, and it's entitled The Siege of Bari. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. All things considered, the men in charge of the rebellion against Duke Robert Giscard, they got off pretty light. They had property confiscated, sure, land, all the rest. Even in the case of Geoffrey of Conversano, at least, you know, he was even forced into a vassalage status to Robert. But I mean, we're talking Robert Giscard. We're talking about the most feared Norman in the entire medieval world, second only to you know, King William I of England. But just two years earlier, this might not have been the case concerning William. The fact that these guys' heads were still attached by the end of 1068 is an absolute bloody miracle as far as I'm concerned. At first glance, I can only chalk it up to the fact that three of the four were blood-related. But their heads did, in fact, stay attached to their necks, and Robert did, in fact, come out once again on top of things in Apulia. And John Julius Norwich, historian in his book, The Other Conquest, offers us another explanation for why these men lived besides just the fact that they were all related. He writes, quote, He now needed every ally he could find for a last all-out drive against the Greeks. End quote. And if you remember on the last episode how I mentioned how news traveled, a thousand years ago and how everyone at least heard a few words about the major goings-on in even the most far-flung places of Christendom in the 11th century? Well, the Seljuk menace, as Norwich calls it, gave Robert the perfect opportunity to seize control over all of Apulia, including the thorn in his side all these years, the city of Bari on the Adriatic Sea coast. With Bari once and for all in his control, there would be absolutely no Byzantine stronghold with which to flow money and support for unrest on the peninsula. That's a big deal. Not knowing how long the Seljuks would terrorize the Eastern Romans, Robert wasted no time at all. He called in all sorts of favors and allegiances, I mean like everywhere. Robert was marching on Bari. First, he made a general call to arms. As we know from our little forays into feudalism on the show, when your overlord calls for anything, you answer the damn call. I mean, but this call to arms included all those wandering landless knights looking to get established. Mercenaries, essentially. Normans, native Italians, Lombards, and even Greeks. Robert couldn't give a single rip about who joined him. He would pay them, as he always did, and he would pay them handsomely for their services. Don't forget Robert's general rule of thumb. Land is where the real power lie, not gold and treasures. However, after nearly 500 years of controlling Bari and much of the area surrounding it until the last 50 years or so, the Eastern Roman grip was a strong one to shatter. But, again, 
Robert knew that the Byzantines were currently being stretched too thin. Not only were there rumors of the Seljuks sucking a lot of their energies and money away from the West over back East, but Robert knew that the new emperor, Romanus IV Diogenes, was having a hard time earning the trust of the Byzantine elite. To boot, he saw the results of this turmoil back in Constantinople when every single Varangian who had recently wreaked havoc against his rule in Apulia, leaving him truly powerless to fight back, well, to the point that he lost two major cities, mind you, in Brindisi and Toronto in southern Apulia. Well, he saw every Varangian instantly removed from Apulia. Like, all of a sudden, poof, they were gone. I mean, as far as Robert was concerned, the writing was on the wall. It was now or never to act on Bari. Norwich writes, quote, hardly waiting for a response to his call, he marched with his full army to Bari, end quote. Now, what about Bari? We've heard the name Bari said over and over again on this podcast. It played a major role in the early days of Norman migration southward. It was the port at which the likes of General George Maniakis and the Varangian leader, the future Harold Hardrada, king of Norway, entered into southern Italy on their way to Sicily. All the unrest against Norman rule over the previous three decades had money and support funneled through its port, and it was almost directly across the Adriatic from its eastern counterpart, Durazzo, which created a direct connection along the Via Ignatia with Constantinople without having to travel through too many hostile waters. If there was a capital of the eastern Roman land holdings on the Italian peninsula, Bari would surely have the title. If not the Eastern Roman land holdings anywhere out west, Bari would have that title as capital. No question. Norwich tells us that it was the, quote, largest, richest, and best defended of all the Apulian cities, end quote. And if you thought Palermo was going to be a tough conquest, Norwich doubles down on Bari when he says, quote, he was well aware that the successful siege of such a place would involve the greatest single military operation the Normans had undertaken in the 50 years since their arrival in Italy. End quote. Let me say that again. The single greatest military operation the Normans had ever undertaken in their 50 years in Italy. So, Bari. It's not nothing, let me put it that way. Arriving outside Bari, Robert Giscard needed a new game plan. Today, Bari has expanded, obviously, over the last thousand years to cover a few miles inland and then, of course, up and down the Adriatic coast. It's a, it's a long city with a squishy middle, if you'll allow the, the description. There, right smack in the middle, is a single thin landmass that that juts out, far out, and starts to curl backward toward the shore. Though today it looks like a pretty solid harbor, but at the time it merely had the makings of a pretty good harbor. I mean, it was. It was a very good harbor, but it's nothing as polished, obviously, as it is today. Over the next thousand years, though, locals would develop this harbor harbor into a clean-cut, pier-filled, seawall-protected harbor. But again, at the time, though formidable for its day, was again really just a simple thin landmass jutting out into the Adriatic Sea. At the time, though, that's all that was needed to make a pretty solid and defendable port city. For a brief history of the city and piggybacking off of the points I made in the recent Patreon episode about the, you know, the, the mind-boggling depth of Italian history, Bari had been around since long before the Roman Empire was established. It had been an ancient Greek port allowing easy access to the peninsula. Of course, then Bari changed hands to be Roman. It continued to be the largest city on the Adriatic. Now, during the Middle Ages, Venice would take that title of biggest, most prosperous city on the Adriatic. But for the 2,000 plus years before the 11th century, And then the last couple hundred years from today, Bari has actually had the title. Now, there is one side note that I'd like to point out here, because honestly, 
I'm afraid I'll forget about it in the coming episodes. See, sometime in the decade or so immediately following Robert Giscard's Siege of Bari, some bones were brought back from a town called Myra or Mira in modern-day Turkey. These bones were of a man, a monk or priest specifically, who was sainted already. Now, I couldn't find if the bones were donated or simply relocated or, well, were outright stolen, but the bones ended up in the 1070s or early 1080s in the city of Bari, at the time under direct Norman control. Sorry, spoiler, Bari turns Norman. A church was built to house these bones as they were incredibly treasured relics in the Catholic Church. This church had begun construction in 1087 and wouldn't be completed and consecrated for another hundred years or so. But the church, still around today, that church where the bones are, it's called the Basilica di San Nicola. For those who may know Italian, you've probably put it together, that the city of Bari for the last 950 years or so, beginning under Norman rule immediately after the events of this episode here, for the last 950 or so years has been the resting place of none other than St. Nicholas, known widely today as the original Santa Claus. Who knew? (laughs) Does this have anything really to do with Robert Giscard's Siege of Barry, which kicked off in 1068? Absolutely not, but I thought it was a fun fact. So, back to the siege. Getting a lay of the land, Robert had to contend with the fact that a simple land-based siege would be as effective against Barry as was his siege of Palermo back in 1064. See, the Normans were always reflecting, and they were always thinking, and they were always planning ahead, but more importantly, they were always learning. He could only hold out hope that there were no spiders nesting around Bari as well, even though, let's make, make it clear, those stupid tarantulas are across Sicily and southern Italy, so could have been there, I don't know. But his problem was more than that, an obvious one. The Normans, for all their dangerous warfare acumen, they had virtually no knowledge of naval warfare. Heck, even transporting their horses was a relatively new skill for them, first witnessed when they were mercenaries for General George Maniaki's decades earlier, and then put into practice just eight years or so earlier, when Count Roger had to figure out how to smuggle himself into Sicily to start this whole conquest of Sicily. This knowledge was, of course, perfected way up north during William's conquest of England. But again, this was just transporting horses across the the water. Naval warfare was something entirely different. Naval blockades? Not really the Norman shtick. So it seems Robert Giscard had to, well, live up to his name. He had to get creative. He stationed himself on the entrance into the port of the city that jutted out into the Adriatic, which, let's just be clear, if it wasn't already, the city was on this this stretch of land that jutted outward, so, for all intents and purposes. Effectively, though, this cut the city off from the mainland, where so many of the Bariat barons had their land. It was back on the mainland, for obvious reasons. He didn't just set himself up there, though. Rather, Robert blocked the city of Bari off from its land-based trade and activities. Malaterra says he blocked off the city from the mainland, quote-unquote, from shore to shore, pointing out how the Normans stood guard at every inch from south to north across the entrance to the tiny peninsula. From here, Robert ordered his ships. Yes, although naval warfare was the clear Norman blind spot, They did actually have ships. Well, he ordered these ships around the peninsula itself, all the way out and around and back, having quickly procured and created massive chains, which he ordered to bind each and every ship across miles of peninsula just off the coast of the peninsular city. Malaterra writes, quote, Thus he had the city surrounded and prevented any escape from it on either side of the city projecting way out into the sea and attached to the ships on each flank by ropes so that if the Bariats 
should direct any attack against the ships, then his soldiers could bring them help speedily and by a direct route. End quote. So far, so good for Robert Giscard's naval efforts. The mighty port city was surrounded, like on all sides, land and water, and effectively isolated from the entire outside world. How long could they last? That was the question prompted by every single siege in history, right? Malaterra, though, tells us that the people of Bari, the Bariats, as he calls them, and so, so will we, didn't think much of Duke Robert's blockade. He says, quote, However, the Bariats wanted to show that they were not intimidated by what the Duke had done, and that they held his siege works in contempt. They hung out, <laughs> I love this, they hung out their most valuable treasures on display and shouted insults at Giscard. They trusted in the strength of their bastions and had no fear of losing their property. However, such things did not discourage Giscard from what he intended, but rather heightened his ambition and greed. The more they boasted of the riches within the walls, the fiercer his hope of gain became. His mind remained staunchly fixed on what he had begun, and he replied to them laughing. Here's another Malaterra speech, by the way. So Giscard replied to them laughing. Those things which you have shown me are mine, and since you have presented them to me of your own free will, I thank you. Keep them safe for the time being. You will certainly lament their loss, for in the future I shall give them away generously. End quote. You gotta love a little medieval trash talking. Now, in the meantime, he intended to show the Bariats the wrath that they were currently stoking within their duke he ordered the immediate construction of innumerable siege machines, such as towers and battering rams and all that, as well as earthworks around the city's western perimeter where the peninsula met the mainland. Again, the stretch of land that Robert had completely cut off from the city. In addition, he stoked the flames of his men's passions, promising each and every one of them the various things he'd seen hanging from the Bariat's own windows. Though fear began to well up in the minds of the people of Bari as these earthworks were created, the towers being erected and the days passed, and as the days passed into weeks, Richard Brown, in his book of Malaterra's Chronicle, adds that, quote, Bari was not prepared to surrender as, for example, Regio had been in 1060. Bari proved to be a formidable obstacle, though the timing of Robert's attack was fortuitous, end quote. In short, pulling in all that we already know on the podcast, the Eastern Roman Empire was going through its own crisis with the change of emperors and the, the dan dangerous Seljuk incursions into Anatolia. Brown adds, quote, The situation in Byzantine Italy was severe, but it was not seen as a major priority in Constantinople. Even so, the siege of Bari lasted almost three years, end quote. That's right. Robert Giscard's siege of Barry began in 1068, but it would eventually take until 1071 to have the city fully collapsed and in his control. Well, what happened in 1071? We can't forget that. Hadn't been that long, has it? 1071 was the Battle of Manzikert, August to be specifically, and the larger collapse of the Eastern Roman power across Anatolia. If you remember what was said during that episode on Manzikert, the Eastern Roman Empire would never again enjoy the same hold on Anatolia as it did the day before that fateful battle. Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, was from that point on, until today, Turkish for the first time in history. But of course, the siege on Bari wasn't so clean-cut a story as, you know, how should we say, Robert started the siege in 1068, and it ended three years later in 1071. No, that, that's just lazy history telling. <laughs> For instance, Brown tells us that there were two separate, and desperate, attempts by the Bariats to break the blockade, both in 1068. These must have been harrowing events, each with their own heroes and daring decisions, but as far as I can tell, those particular details are lost to us. So, why did it take three years? Well, those breaks in the blockade, 
they did see massive floods of food and supplies that helped push the end of the siege into the, the realm of years. But the length of time was also designed by the otherwise bellicose Robert Giscard. To a man like Giscard, being the hammer he was, much like his duke up north, Duke William, he saw everything as a nail. But interestingly, he didn't see Bari as a nail. Could this be a sign of a little maturity finally coming to the old cunning duke? I say old because by 1068, Robert de Hauteville was around 53 years old. Today, 53 years old is seen as a new adolescence, kind of, you know, typically seeing people earning more financial freedom, a renewed interest in love and their, their personal passions toward life. You know, that's today. However, a thousand years ago, 53 could be seen as, as ancient as Rome. <laughs> it was hardly unheard of to, to have people live that long, but to be over 50 years and still leading sieges and, and armies into battle, well, well, that was just stepping into legendary status. So why did he not consider the city of Bari, a city that has been a thorn in his side since the moment he took control of Apulia? How did he not see Bari as a nail? Why didn't he just storm in and destroy the place? Just level it as a sign, right? Again, throw, I throw out in, a, in the idea of a little maturity hitting him after all these years. See, this is where I, this is how I kind of measure it out here. Throughout the Adriatic Sea, there were a handful of prosperous cities that controlled those waves. And they were very, very lucrative waves, mind you. I mean, Venice is only going to expand on that. They're going to capitalize it like you wouldn't believe. Now, Durazzo on the southeastern coastline and Venice tucked way up at the top of the Adriatic were both independent and they were powerful but they were also under the sway of Constantinople, more so Durazzo than Venice in 1068. Otherwise, that was the only other city to hold any real sway over those waves. That's right. Bari was it. Bari was still the bigger city of all the other, or all of them along the Adriatic. Robert Giscard understood the situation. In order for Apulia to truly prosper, Bari needed to remain the successful, prosperous port city it was currently. As Brown says, quote, Bari was a large and prosperous town with a diversified economy that Duke Robert needed to remain prosperous. Coercion was not really a viable economic or political option, end quote. So beyond destroying the city, he couldn't even risk economic espionage, couldn't even rot it from within. He didn't want that for Bari. He needed Bari to stay strong. Again, it was imperative that Bari remain as much as he could manage it in the same exact condition as when the siege started. Hopefully I'm not pushing the point too hard, but it's an important point to make. Now that said, those couple blockade runners that had incalculably helped the city push the siege into the realm of years, well... Robert Giscard learned from those experiences and tightened things up as he went on. Sure, some individuals were able to break through the Norman ships, but after those two incidents in 1068, there were no other large-scale breakouts that occurred. It was just a matter of time at that point. So without a supply of food, things became dire for the once-confident Bariats. Sometime between the start of the siege and I'd reckon 1068, the time is a little wishy-washy. I would imagine it took some, some months to, you know, get into it and start to get desperate. The Bariats became just that, quite desperate. Malaterra writes, quote, Unable to do anything by force, they resorted to treachery and prepared a plot against the Duke's life. They came to an agreement with a dubious character who they paid to sneak out of the city and tried to kill him with a javelin. This man, Amorinus, was seized by covetousness and deceived by avarice. He hurried to carry out this wicked deed, which to him then seemed noble, for he had been misled by the great cunning of learned men. He took a javelin, which had been dipped in poison, and left the city. End quote. Just so we're clear, it seems to me that Malaterra is stretching to include the Bariats in the treachery, which could have very well have been the case. I don't, I don't doubt that the leaders of Bari were men like any other men throughout history. 
I mean, men willing to protect themselves and their families at all cost. But the vilification is what gets me. Let's say that Melitera's retelling of this assassination plot is accurate, 100% accurate. Why the vilification? Any single one of us listening to this, I'm assuming based on the fact that I believe we're all pretty honorable and good human beings, would do whatever it took, whatever it took to protect our own up to and including murdering anyone threatening our family's lives. Sorry, I I just see that as a cold reality of even the most honorable person. You're honorable because you can be dangerous. You choose not to be. There's the honor, right? You choose not to be until you have to. You can attack me, right? But don't think you can do that to my wife or my children without some dire repercussions. Why wouldn't the Bariats try to kill Duke Robert? The man's slowly suffocating and starving their wives and children. Of course, Malaterra vilifies these Bariat conspirators because they schemed to kill his benefactor's older brother and Duke. But come on, who wouldn't in this situation? Sorry if that offends some of our softer listeners, but that's again, that's just a cold reality. I don't for a second blame the Bariats for the secretive plot. Who wouldn't? Again, that said, I'm not choosing a side (laughs) necessarily, although, yeah, okay, maybe I am. Um, I have no horse in this specific race, but that's why I love history so much. I can, (laughs) here I am, I can try to be objective, right? I can be objective while simultaneously applying my own situation to what these other people were going through. I encourage everyone to do the same. That's where the value of history comes in. All right, anyway, so back to Malaterra. With his poison-tipped javelin, the assassin sneaks out of Bari and heads to the land-based blockade encampments of the Norman aggressors. Here we are, back into it. Now, Malaterra continues, quote, Throwing stones, it's kind of funny, throwing stones over the walls at the enemy with a slingshot, as if he was one of our own men, he avoided the pickets and approached our camp, end quote. I just love the image, by the way. It's it's almost like a comedy show. He's going to like... He sneaks out, gets on, you know, the Norman side of the walls. He turns right back to the walls to try to cover himself. And he starts like slingshotting rocks to try to hit people either on the walls or on the other side of the walls, you know, and then he turns and tries to, you know, kill the Duke. That's just interesting to me. Anyway, quote, in the evening, as the sun was fast setting, the Duke was sitting at the dinner at dinner in his bivouac which had been built from the branches and leaves. The assassin approached from the rear and made a hole between the branches of the wall, believing that he had a clear idea of the Duke's position, both by looking and by sound of his voice, he hurled the javelin which he carried out. Although it tore the Duke's clothing, God protected him and he was unhurt, while the javelin buried itself in the ground. End quote. That's right. The assassin's poison-tipped spear hurled in to the Duke's tent, flew so close to Robert's body that it tore his clothing, but left his skin untouched. I mean, I don't know if there's a better definition of miracle. (laughs) I don't know. And in the hubbub of it all, the assassin was able to escape back into the city and into the mists of history. As far as I can tell, we know nothing of Amorinus's fate. Amorinus, the man who attempted an assassination on Duke Robert Giscard and came within millimeters of achieving it. Now, if you remember, Roger de Hauteville back in Sicily just a year earlier in 1068 once again shocked the medieval world by defeating the stout North African mercenary army led by the Zirid Prince Ayub just 16 miles southeast of Palermo at the Battle of Missilemary, embarrassing the prince so bad he returned to Africa in shame. And with with Enna's emir Ibn al-Hawas having died uh, the year before at the hands of that same Ayub, well, Roger was the preeminent military mind in the entire emirate of Sicily. That affords him the freedom to head over to the mainland and join his brother in his siege of Bari. The year was now early 1071, and as Roger was gathering his men, rearranging his soldier placements around Norman-held Sicily, 
making sure his wife is safe back in Traina with a stout force to guard her safety. Although I haven't mentioned it yet, but she apparently was quite the military mind herself, much like Sicklegate, Robert's wife, right? Uh, but she was doing okay, but he wanted to make sure she obviously had her guard to ensure her safety while he was gone. You know, sailing, he also sailing over to Reggio in order to pick up more of, well, everything that he's going to need. And then deciding to sail around the bottom of the boot of Italy, heading toward his brother's blockade. While all of this was happening on Roger's end, the governor of Bari, a Greek named Argarizus, wrote a note, wrote a letter addressed to Emperor Romanus IV back in Constantinople to inform him of this dire situation in Bari. In Malaterra's own words, quote, he was to let the emperor know that the city, which alone remained faithful to him, that is to the emperor, was harassed on every side by enemy attacks and, unless help was brought speedily, would be lost. It had already been under siege for three years and the citizens had finally become disheartened and were prepared to surrender. If he did not retain it, there would be no further hope of recovering the province, which had been seized by the enemy. End quote. Now, this is where it gets a little interesting, uh, if it hasn't already. Uh, see, Emperor Romanus IV, already dealing with stuff, you know, happening way out near Manzikert. This is early 1071. This is, say, six to eight months before the Battle of Manzikert. But he's still dealing with all that stuff out in eastern Anatolia. He received the escaped Bariat, a Bariat who was able to break through the Norman blockade individually. And he received him and he read the letter from Governor Argarizus of Bari. Malaterra tells us that the messenger even pushed the issue boldly by backing everything in the letter up verbally as well. It was a genuine, bold, heartfelt appeal for help. Romanus IV agreed and sent a sizable fleet. Remember, his dealings with Alp Arslan needed absolutely no navy whatsoever, so he felt he could afford it. Well, he sent this fleet to Durazzo across the Adriatic from Bari, like directly across. And who did Romanus put in charge of the fleet? None other than Jocelyn, the former Norman baron of Mofetto, who rose up against Duke Robert just a few years earlier alongside a few of Robert's own nephews. Remember him? Well, after that rebellion, a rebellion that included Varangians helping to take back Brindisi and Toronto into Greek hands, after that rebellion, Duke Robert took it easy on his unruly nephews, all things considered. But Jocelyn, not a member of the Hopeville clan, had escaped through Bari and into Durazzo, and then onto the city of Corinth where he's spent the duration of Bari's siege trying to piece his life back together. Now, part of his, you know, that rough getting his life back together wasn't rough really at all. It consisted of, of him instantly becoming a nobleman in Corinth, even being referred to as Jocelyn of Corinth in Malaterra's Chronicle, mind you. Now, he wasn't just a nobleman in Corinth. After an incredibly short period of time, he was named the Duke of Corinth. So after this rebellion, Jocelyn actually made out all right. Malatari even tells that, the, that this traitor to Duke Robert was, quote, both a mighty warrior and a cunning diplomat, end quote. Jocelyn was now in charge of, quote unquote, a substantial force with which to bring help to the Bariats. The original messenger sent to Romanus IV was sent back with strict instructions about what kind of signal would be seen when Jocelyn's Greek fleet would approach the Norman blockade. It was around the time when the messenger snuck past the Norman ships and into Bari once again that Count Roger, having sailed around the southern part of the peninsula, arrived with his reinforcements. Malaterra writes, quote, The Bariats were overjoyed by this message, and anticipated what needed to be done. For to someone who wants something, nothing can ever be done too fast. They lit the fire to show which harbor Jocelyn's fleet should aim at, and noisily rejoiced singing and shouting 
more than they were accustomed to do. Our men wondered what this pretended. A number of possibilities were canvassed and there was widespread discussion, but the more experienced men realized the truth, that they were expecting a relief force by sea, end quote. Now, something that Roger arrived with were more than just men. He brought many, many galleys as well. Malaterra tells us, quote, Count Roger was fierce as a lion in battle, but was also ruled by prudence and was thus granted fortune's favor. He arranged this matter cunningly, ordering a patrol boat to go out and to go out every night to see if the expected ships were approaching. Lo and behold, on one of these occasions in the middle of the night, lights were seen, shining like stars on the top mast of every vessel. When this was reported to the count, he hurried out to meet the enemy with his squadron as fast as possible, reckoning that he himself had enough ships to do this. End quote. So wait a second. <laughs> so our, our Normans, who were absolutely incredible in land-based warfare, you know, with their armor and their swords and, and their horses and just their, their, their bravery and all of it, right? These guys were unstoppable no matter where they were on the continent. And he's feeling confident enough to go out and have a naval battle against actual sailors. Okay. All right. Good on you, Roger. Good on you. Let's see how this turns out. An interesting narrative begins to form here in Malaterra's account. See all of this from Roger's approach to the nightly patrols, to the approach of Jocelyn's Greek fleet, to Roger heading out to meet the Greek fleet, the Imperial Navy. All of this was witnessed by the Bariats holding out helplessly against the Norman siege. They watched Roger's Norman fleet head out in the middle of the night toward their Imperial saviors, but they could do nothing, nothing but watch the battle that commenced. It's an interesting view, I suppose we could call it. It, com- it commenced the battle with the realization by Roger that one of the enemy ships toward the center had two lanterns on the top mast instead of one like every other ship. He figured this to be Duke Jocelyn's ship. He ordered an all-out attack on that one ship. Quote-unquote, a fierce battle was joined. Malaterra writes, but tragedy struck almost instantly. And it was a tragedy repeated time and time again before this incident, most likely afterwards as well. We'll get to that. I'm sure. For instance, many episodes ago, when we spoke of the, the famous battle of Val, Valles Dunes back in 1047, way up in Normandy, when hundreds of the Frankish King's knights drowned while trying to cross a river to flee a rampaging Duke William. You remember that one? They drowned in the river because of the immense weight of their armor. With so much metal, it's nearly impossible for even the strongest swimmer to overcome the weight of it all. Surely, this will be a tragedy again, as I said, we'll see in future episodes, I I can only imagine. But when Roger, again, just to drive it home one more time, the Normans were not naval. (laughs) They just weren't. They didn't do things on the high seas. That was... That was their ancestors, right? Not the Normans, at least up to this point. We'll see if that changes in the future. But when Roger ordered his men to pull up beside Duke Jocelyn's ship, many of Roger's brave knights, just warriors that they were, they boarded the Imperial ship all at once. Malatera used the word rashly, as a matter of fact. He continued, Quote, such was their weight with their armor, all on one side of the ship, that they fell overboard and 150 men in armor were drowned. End quote. It was an incredibly hard lesson in naval warfare to learn for Roger and his Normans. But if the Normans were anything, whether in the North or in the South, they were pretty fantastic students of war. They would reflect on this and they would learn from this and they would adjust as needed in the future. But for now, in the moment, that was a hard pill to swallow. Imagine seeing, imagine being Roger and seeing all those men, you know, all those men, 
And they all just in, in a, in a rush, they wanted to stop the battle. They wanted to defeat their enemy. That's what Normans did. And as Roger was on the, the, on his ship and he's watching his men try to bring glory to the Norman name, you know, all the things defeat the enemy. And then to see that entire ship just start to lean and then keel over. And then all of these men go plunking into the dark waters. I never to be seen again. It's quite a scene. It's quite a scene. It's quite tragic. And that said though, Roger continued the fight despite the loss of his Malaterra reports, 150 men. And keep in mind that the Normans were all decked out in that knightly armor and they just kept coming. The fleet that the emperor sent were no doubt experienced sailors. I can't possibly imagine them being in full armor during a naval battle, right? If true, and I think it is, this is just another glaring, obvious indicator as to the lack of naval warfare acumen the mighty Normans had. Normans just weren't sailors. Their ancestors, yes, but they were at least 150 years away from the likes of Rollo and the Viking founders of Normandy. In the end, though, if you can believe it, against all odds, Roger comes through, yeah, once again, (laughs) and defeats Duke Jocelyn and his experienced Byzantine naval fleet. Norwich, in his book The Other Conquest, tells us that Against all odds, nine out of 20 Byzantine ships were sunk during the sea battle and not a single one of them was able to break the Norman blockade who were simply at the ready should one of them break away from Roger and try. Another interesting perspective given to us by Malaterra was that the Bariats weren't the only people helplessly watching on as Roger's fleet engaged the Byzantine navy that night. Apparently the battle could be seen by Duke Robert himself. And it's said that the Duke was quite anxious as well, knowing his little brother was out there fighting. Think about it. Robert de Hauteville had only three brothers, both or all three younger left alive by 1071. Count Roger, William of the Principate and Maget, all there in Southern Italy. And the one out fighting on the waves was the second most powerful Norman in all of Italy. The loss would be twofold for the Duke. He was so stressed that he said to not believe the news that Roger would be returning victorious until he'd seen it with his own eyes. Malaterra writes, quote, once he had seen that he was safe, he burst into tears, end quote. You know, for such a mighty misanthropic warrior, Robert Guiscard sure was a softy when it came to Roger. Anyway, what's more says Malaterra, quote, the count sent Jocelyn, who was splendidly garbed in the Greek fashion, a captive to the Duke as a present, end quote. Man, (laughs) camels to the Pope, some Greek guy to his brother. It was fitting that there in the future resting place of Santa Claus himself, we realized that Count Roger's love language must have been gift giving. Ultimately, when the waves settled and news of Jocelyn's captivity in one of Duke Robert's jails was received, the Bariats knew there was just nothing else to hold out hope for. It was now mid-April, 1071, and Duke Robert had finally beaten the stubborn Bariats into submission. The city was open to Robert Giscard once and for all, and he wasted no time putting things in the city in order including the confiscation of all those treasures and riches he was taunted by three years earlier. Norwich writes, quote, On 16 April 1071, the Duke, with Roger at his side, rode triumphantly through the streets of Bari. Much to their surprise, he treated the Bariats well. Peace terms were reasonable, and he even restored to the citizens certain lands outside the walls where the Normans had recently been in occupation but then he could afford to be magnanimous and could. And as we know, one of the interesting personality traits of Robert Guiscard's is how magnanimous he was when it came to supporting his knights, especially those on campaign with him. After Bari, in order to keep this ubiquitously Greek population on good terms, he needed to extend the magnanimity to them as well. 
Otherwise, the moment he left, they would immediately turn around and send for help once again, or rise up, or pull help from Durazzo, or any number of things. They would just rise up again. He needed to extend that magnanimity to them. To be honest, it was, it was, a, it was a pretty brilliant move, if you ask me. By May of 1071, Barry was firmly in his control. So he sent Rod, Count Roger back to Sicily with renewed interest in conquering the island, starting with Palermo. That's right. Robert was ready to take another crack at the capital city of the Emirate in the hopes of tamping down any Saracen hoping to capitalize on the power vacuum amongst the Muslim elite on the island. More on the attack of Palermo on the next episode, but we're not quite done with Robert's actions in Apulia after sending Roger back. So it's now June 1071, and again, with Bari under his control, Robert moved the bulk of his forces quickly to, the, to southern Apulia, specifically toward the city of Otranto. I want you all to picture the boot of Italy for a moment. It's got that big, the, the, the small point and then the big stiletto high heel on the other side, right? Now zoom in to the high heel of the boot. So Bari is right above where that stiletto heel begins, right along what would be the calf of the, the leg. Heading into the stiletto heel, we come across Taranto on the inside of the heel. Then Brindisi on the outside of the heel, or the Adriatic side, you could say. Then Lecce right in the center toward the bottom. And then Gallipoli on the inside at the bottom. Some of you might remember Gallipoli as a major ally invasion point in World War II, some 900 years into this future. And then finally we have Otranto, way down at the bottom of the heel. Okay. I hope I did a good job. But with that image, why would Duke Robert head all the way down to the city of Otranto? So if we see the Adriatic Sea as the new ground zero for Robert Giscard's next chapter, again, <laughs> we're talking like 55, 56 years old now, mind you. Otranto is actually crucial to properly set up. Directly across from Bari, a little ways north, is Durazzo, which is today the coastal city of Duras in modern-day Albania. Whoever controlled that stretch controlled the maritime powerhouse of the Eastern Mediterranean, the rapidly up-and-coming presence of Venice. Robert knew that the Greeks in Constantinople were on friendly terms with Venice. In fact, the Venetians even had their own quarter within the big city of Constantinople, gifted to them by a recent emperor. Robert also just witnessed Byzantine naval fleets easily accessing Durazzo by sea. The Adriatic was effectively controlled by the Greeks. If Robert was going to insulate himself against his new archenemies, the Eastern Romans, he would need to cut off the Adriatic, like, like completely cut it off. Otranto is further south than both Bari and Durazzo. So if he was able to draw his own line across the mouth of the Adriatic, then Apulia would be safe essentially, from any further Byzantine incursions and influence. And it might have the added benefit of either suffocating the mighty Venetians altogether or force them to be friendly with him and not some far-off emperor. At Otranto, Robert had some work to do. It was a big plan, a big dream. But he was a big man with big dreams. Throughout June and July of 1071, Robert stayed in Otranto. He had his knights keep a constant presence up and down the heel as to keep any naughty Apulians from rising up and causing trouble, which effectively brought the locals under his control once and for all. It had always been part of Apulia, the one part that most eluded him besides Bari. Well, that was all over now. In order to make Otranto into what he wanted it to be, he would need to move mountains to do it. Okay, moving mountains didn't happen, but what if I told you that Robert Giscard actually moved a whole hill? People watched on for an entire month while Duke Robert had an entire hill removed from Otranto 
just so the access to the Adriatic Sea would be unimpeded and more straight-lined. Keep in mind that spies were everywhere, as the area was only recently tamed by Robert's forces. So when Malaterra writes, quote, His activities quite terrified the people of Durazzo, who were afraid that he and his army would cross the sea and attack them, quote, or end quote. Well, I believe him. I believe Malaterra. <laughs> After Durazzo's role in recent events, knowing who Robert Giscard was and what he was capable of, I mean, he just moved a mini mountain. We could say, we could say that, right? A mini mountain. He moved a mountain, right? I can absolutely believe that the people of Durazzo were deathly afraid of what may come next. In fact, we're told that they sent him a gift of a horse and a mule just to appease him. All things considered, I suppose it's the thought that counts. So on the next episode, the people of Apulia watch as Duke Robert loads up a large chunk of his forces in Otranto, bound for Malta. Yeah, yeah, Malta. Or at least that was the public message allowed to leak out. Robert and Roger wanted to ensure that the North Africans couldn't possibly come back, so the the two brothers would push into the tiny island of Malta, just south of Sicily. And this tiny island of Malta lay strategically between North Africa and Sicily. I mean, it makes sense, right? But was that actually what Robert promised his little brother before Roger left for Bari? The Palermitans sure thought so. Until next time.